We've come up to the point which uh, is generally appropriate to demarcate the end of the development of the church during its period of formation. Gregory the Great, the first bishop of Rome, who was ever called Pope, is usually regarded as a convenient place to begin the period of the deformation of the church. And, of course, uh, John Calvin, perhaps just before him, Martin Luther, is our general point of departure to begin a consideration of the reformation of the church. And so this morning, having reached Gregory the, the Great, uh, we, we wish to proceed to outline the eschatology of victory during the church of the deformation. That is to say, the eschatology of victory from the beginning of the Middle Ages, Gregory the, the Great, through the time of the Reformation, Aldrich Zwingli. Now, the first thing we need to say is that these dark ages were not quite as dark as we are often told. There were indeed features of darkness, particularly toward the end of these ages, and yet there were always bright lights, even in the darkness, and the darkness was not able to put out the bright light. For Jesus Christ had come into the world, and in spite of all temporary setbacks, the Son of Righteousness with healing in his wings was destined, and is today destined, uh, to roll back the darkness in his good time. Now, during the beginning of these so-called Dark Ages, from the 7th through the 11th centuries, the Church somewhat stagnated under the papacy in the West and under pressure from Mohammedanism in the East. And yet, the idea of man's task in this world was still being kept alive and even expanded. For example... Uh, Isidore, the Spanish Bishop of Seville, who flourished about A.D. 630, wrote an important book of sentences or opinions. He also wrote a, an important work on the origins or etymologies. And later still, the idea that the church militant um, gradually expanding here on earth was developing into the triumphant Corpus Christianum idea. That is, the idea that the institutional church uh, throughout the Mediterranean basin itself represented the body of Christ uh, and more and more extended its influence as an institute in the organic fabric of nominally Christian Europe, so that we find the uh, issues of relationship betwe uh, between the church, focusing in the Pope, and the state, focusing in the medieval Carolingian emperors, for example, coming sharply to the fore. The situation, uh, however tense, and however much subject to abuse from time to time, was, I believe, even then, uh, perhaps a lot happier than we have it in a large part of the world today. The idea, then, that the Corpus Christianum, the body of Christ, was expanding and was destined to continue expanding triumphantly here on earth, was warmly advocated uh, and elaborated throughout these centuries by theologians such as the Venerable Bede, Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Peter Lombard, the Master of Sentences. At a later stage, it was especially championed by Albert the Great, and even more particularly by his even greater pupil, the brilliant Thomas Aquinas. The Venerable Bede was an English presbyter, or as they were then beginning to be called, priest of Yarrow. He flourished approximately A.D. 730, and he wrote an important commentary on the book of Revelation, 
the explanation of the apocalypse. In this work he states that the first seal of Revelation 6 uh, is the place where John sees the beauty of the primitive church. In the following three seals he sees the unsuccessful threefold war against the church. The war launched especially by persecutors, false brethren, and heretics. And then in the fifth seal, John in the book of Revelation sees the glory of the victors under this war. We see then that what Bede is saying is that in spite of all resistance and setbacks and persecution even, the church is emerging victorious down through the centuries. A little later, and here I give a merest outline of the more important figures, there were many more, in 796, Alcuin, the English advisor to Emperor Charlemagne himself, uh, wrote his commentary on the Apocalypse or the Book of Revelation. And in this commentary, he re-endorsed Augustine's eschatology of victory and general position on prophecy, and he set the tone for the interpretation of prophecy for the next several centuries. But then from about A.D. 830, we begin to find increasing speculation as to the possible identity of the predicted Antichrist and as to his overthrow in time and before the final coming of the Lord Jesus. Here we think, notably, of Hrabanus, the French Archbishop of Mainz, who in his enorations, uh, in Paul's epistles, the twelfth book, where he's discussing Second Thessalonians chapter 2, states that the man of sin, in Second Thessalonians 2, is not just one particular tyrant, like Nero or Domitian, but the whole line of anti-Christian Roman Caesars. But it was especially uh, ten years later that a German abbot of Reichenau called Walliford Strabo elaborated in his uh, ordinances of, on the tongues again discussing Second Thessalonians he points out that verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2 that is uh, the end shall not come except there shall have come first a falling away that Paul is speaking in a hidden way concerning the destruction of the Roman Empire so that he might not incite them the Roman Empire to the persecution of the church or he says this concerning the spiritual empire of the Roman church or the departure from the faith. Here Strabo in 840, himself a Roman Catholic, is beginning to recognize um, the developing Roman, uh, Romish uh, apostasy, church apostasy from Christianity, the deformation of the church as at least in part a fulfillment of the events predicted in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he goes on to say, no doubt Paul was speaking of Antichrist, whom he calls a fugitive. Certainly he is a fugitive, that is one who falls away, he is a fugitive from God. For if this can be said deservedly of all of the wicked, how much more can it be said about him? This is the son of perdition, Antichrist, not by nature, but by imitation. And then at the dawn of the 10th century, we find Arethus, the Palestinian Archbishop of Caesarea, uh, in his work on the Apocalypse, written about 910 A.D., states that the book of Revelation refers to both past and future history. Antichrist is the Roman Empire and will ultimately rule 
even over the Mohammedans. In 1080, an important Italian bishop of Sengi, one Bruno, says in his exposition of Revelation that the male child of the woman clothed with the sun in Revelation chapter 12 represents the seed of the church. This seed, the children of God or true Christians, will overcome invincibly the evil spirits and will teach the nations about God and rule. Here's a very interesting statement that the man-child that the woman brings forth is not so much the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, although not to his exclusion, but is particularly the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which church itself is to overcome vice and evil spirits invincibly, and which church itself is to teach the nations about God and to rule over them. You see, of course, how this fits in with the uh, uh, Roman idea, Romish idea rather, that the church is the body of Christ, an extension of the incarnation, uh, the instrument through which Christ personally and presently extends and expands his control of the world. This, of course, is true in a mystical sense, but hardly so uh, in the concrete material sense in which Rome understands it as expressed in its doctrine of the, of the Mass. And then, round about 1100 A.D., Gerard, the English Archbishop of York, uh, made an important statement, which we find recorded in Venable's article on Gerard, as recorded in the Dictionary of National Biography, uh, Volume 7. Gerard is reputed to have held that the universal priesthood of all believers, not merely the hierarchy, is the highest kind of priesthood, because the body of Christ, which is the church in which all members have been arranged in divine order, is the eye and the face of the church. He is, you see, beginning to argue strenuously for the rights of the so-called laity over against the usurping rights of the clergy. And you'll notice how he next connects this to the fact that all of God's people have received baptism. This is a very strong thought in South African Reformed theology. The fact that God's baptized people wear his badge and in that sense they are the match of any man, priest, clergy, uh, pastor, whosoever. Further, is the universal of priesthood the highest kind of priesthood, says Gerard, because the garment of baptism by which we have been clothed with Christ is incomparably higher than the stole of the priesthood. What's he saying? He's saying to be a baptized layman is more important in the sight of God than it is to wear clerical cloth or priestly garments. No bishop is subject to the Roman Church. He is responsible only to the universal church. Moreover, according to the scale of rank and position in the heavenly kingdom, and according to the teachings of Peter himself, the Pope is subjected to every human creature. That's a remarkable statement made in uh, 1100 A.D. The Pope is not the Holy Father, he is saying, to whom all people are to be subject. The Pope is the slave of slaves, the servant of the people. And indeed, in our strict Calvinist understanding of the role of the special offices, they are not uh, roles that dictate they are roles and special offices that are to serve the people, subject to the control and the monitoring of the people, or better, of God, acting through the people of God uh, in the last analysis. And then in 1140, we find Richard, the Scottish abbot of St. Victor, himself writing yet one more commentary on the Apocalypse or the Book of Revelation. 
Richard tells us that in the book of Revelation, the sounding of the first trumpet indicates the preaching of the gospel to the Jews. And the second seal represents the time of persecution between Nero and Diocletian before the accession of Constantine. The woman clothed with the sun is the church, and the second beast arises not from heathendom, as does the first, but the second beast arises from false brethren, who nevertheless continue to believe in one God. Already we begin to see at the very fringe and threshold of the pre-Reformation the embryonic development of what would later become the mainline, hardline, uh, classic uh, 16th century Protestant view of the identity of the Antichrist and of the continuing triumph of the church against the false church, uh, the phony church Antichrist in spite of persecution. Anselm, the German bishop of Havelberg, in 1150 AD, wrote some dialogues. And in these manuscripts, he tells us that the first seal in the book of Revelation is the church in her purity, with Christ the conquering one, and the rest of the seals are historical too, he says. In other words, the opening up of the seven seals represents a preview of the history of the Christian era, with Christ uh, sallying forth on the great white horse ahead of all of the other historical developments, going forth conquering and to conquer. Let me interject there. It struck me not too long ago that uh, the full force of Christ on the white horse going forth conquering and to conquer is probably a Hebrewism. Uh, probably the, the, uh, the Hebrew uh, absolute state going forth conquering, yes, thoroughly to conquer, uh, to totally conquer, to subjugate utterly. And that uh, if we remember that the human writer of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, was really a Hebrew, what we would then have there is simply an attempt to translate into rather clumsy Greek the full force of the Hebrew uh, uh, absolute construct. We now arrive at one of the most important figures in the Middle Ages, one who is variously been regarded as fanatic on the fringe of uh, the development of, um, of um, variations from the mainline doctrine, but one whom is also regarded as a clear post-millennialist uh, by some post-millennialists and especially by many pre-millennialists. I refer to Joachim the Italian abbot of Floris, flourished in 1190. He too wrote an exposition on the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And he tells us in his understanding of Revelation that there will be a time after the fall of Antichrist. The Holy Spirit, he says, has already bound the devil in part and he will bind him more fully in that day. The idea then of a progressive binding of Antichrist and indeed the fall of Antichrist uh, long before the end of time. And then we begin to reach a stage when the voices for reformation and against the church's deformation became ever more strident. Robert Greathead, the English Bishop of Lincoln, in A.D. 1240, at least according to Light's History of the University of Oxford, and also according to Paris's English History, made the following remarkable statements. Greathead said, Just as skillful builders in laying foundations made careful choice of such stones as were capable of supporting the structure above, the master's regents in divinity ought to take the Old and New Testaments 
as the only sure foundation of their teaching. He is calling the theologians back to the Bible from other supposed sources of revelation and not just back to the New Testament but back to the totality of Scripture to take the Old and the New Testaments as the only sure foundations of their teaching. And then he goes on to say this, Since the sin of Lucifer, which same sin will at the end of time be that of the son of perdition Antichrist, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, there is not and cannot be any other kind of sin so adverse and contrary to the doctrine of the apostles and of the gospel, and at the same time so hateful, detestable, and abominable to our Lord Jesus Christ as to mortify and destroy souls by defrauding them of the offices and ministry of their pastors. Seems to be saying it's a terrible thing to remove a church's pastors and by implication uh, to give them pseudo-pastors or priests in their place. I refuse to obey the Pope, he says, and I oppose and resist the orders contained in the aforesaid letters. And then we come to the great doctor, the universal doctor and German professor of Cologne in A.D. 1250, Albert the Great. He wrote in yet another famous commentary on the book of Revelation. In Revelation, Jezebel represents Muhammad, and the woman clothed with the sun is the church of Jesus, and in the lamb-like beast we find the preachers of Antichrist. This is a fascinating quotation, although some of it is, is rather far-stretched, I think, particularly in identifying Islam with Jezebel. But he distinguishes three movements in his day that he detects to be predicted in the book of Revelation. The Mohammedan apostasy from all revelation, and then the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, represented by the woman in the twelfth chapter, but then also the preachers of Lent Antichrist under the guise of a lamb-like beast. In other words, a group claiming to be Christian but not really being authentically Christian. And to me it's fascinating to realize that this man, Albert the Great, was of course, uh, to some extent, the mentor of Thomas Aquinas, uh, the angelic doctor and Italian professor from Naples in Italy, who to this very day is regarded by the Roman Catholic Church as the greatest theologian they have ever produced, probably even greater than Augustine uh, in their judgment. He wrote, round about A.D. 1270, that the four kingdoms of Daniel 2 and 7 are Babylonia, Persia, Grecia, Rome. And the stone is the kingdom of Christ, which will last through all generations. That in his exposition of Daniel. And then, uh, in his Summa Theologia, his uh, great work of systematic theology, he says that Matthew 24, verse 14, is to be eschatologically understood. This, he says, applies to the church. The spread of the church's authority must become worldwide, and then the end will come. You see Aquinas here, though erroneously, uh, equating, unlike his mentor, Albert the Great, it would seem to me, erroneously equating the Church of Christ with the Roman Catholic Church, and nevertheless, I believe, correctly emphasizes that the Church is predestined and predicted to spread her authority worldwide before the end of time. It is then a church militant which is uh, triumphant uh, before the end of time, before the second coming, in its general direction and progress. And then we find an important figure of the pre-Reformation, Roger Bacon, 
an English physician of Oxford who wrote in 1272 in his compendium as to the games of philosophy the times of Antichrist are at hand in these days of ours therefore wickedness must needs be uprooted and the elect of God must appear so that the world may be renewed and the fullness of the Gentiles may enter in and the remnants of Israel may be converted to faith isn't that fascinating here we have a man in 1272 AD who sees the terrible pressures being brought against believers especially through the instrumentality of the papacy but not panicking and saying oh it's terrible it's all over uh, the only hope is, uh, is an imminent rapture not at all he says we're in the times of the antichrist now let us uproot the wickedness let the elect of God appear let the world be renewed let the fullness of the Gentiles come in let the remnants of Israel be converted to the faith I believe we living in a time like ours should be inspired by such uh, encouraging language as that and then in 1290 AD we reach the famous pre-reformational spiritual movement Pierre de Lévy was the French leader of the spirituals and he wrote in his postilla in the apocalypse that the state of the church from the condemnation of Babylon that is the carnal church up to the end of the world ought to have so much space of time that the whole world and all Israel may be converted to Christ he's saying uh, the Antichrist the Babylon church is here and yet it cannot yet be the end of the world we need more time more space for the whole world and for the Jewish people to be brought to Christ and that time may ascend from the sea by appropriate stages up to the meridian here we find the idea of uh, gradual progress of the expansion of the church by stages rather than a once and for all shot deal for far be it he says that the third principal state of the world bearing appropriately the image of the Holy Spirit this of course he gets from Joachim in the Middle Ages far be it that the third principal stage of the world bearing appropriately the image of the Holy Spirit should be momentary or so ridiculously and disproportionately abbreviated what's he been saying he's saying in essence look 1300 years have elapsed since the birth of the Lord Jesus there was the period of God the Father in history down to the incarnation of the Son and then was the period of the Son for the last 1300 years and we've only just arrived he says at the beginning of that period of world history known as the period of the Spirit well now he says we can't expect the period of the Spirit co-equal with the Father and the Son to last for but a few years as if the rapture were imminent but we should presuppose that the period of the Spirit should proportionately last almost 1300 years too if you do a little calculation you'll see that uh, what he seems to have been assuming is uh, no likelihood of the second coming of Christ and the termination of the age of the Spirit until approximately 2600 AD and then we find the important figure Umbertino of Cassani now he was an Italian lecturer in Tuscany and he wrote about A.D. 1330 and he wrote a very interesting work called the Arbor Vitae, the Tree of Life and in the fifth book and the twelfth chapter of that work as well as in his tract chapter 8 he points out that Revelation 20 1 through 6 is referred to three times I think his meaning there is that the idea of the binding of Satan in that passage is referred to three times at any rate he says first the death and the resurrection of Christ 
when Christ bound Satan's power, that he might not be able to hinder the conversion of the nations to the Lord. Umbertino believes that the nations, as nations, are to be converted to the Lord. He should not be able to hinder the conversion of the nations to the Lord as he had done formerly from the beginning of idolatry up to the incarnation of Christ. Second, he says, this idea of binding, apparently, uh, refers to the time of the expulsion of idolatry from the world under the time of Constantine. For from then, the devil was not able to seduce the nations to worship demons and idols as he had done before. Third, it refers to the time of the death of Antichrist in the seventh state in which he will be bound so that he might not be able to seduce the world and to tempt the church as he had done in the other six states of the church. He seems uh, to be thinking on post-millennial lines here that there is yet ahead a glorious age for the church, uh, a church of gospel triumph everywhere during which Satan will be more securely bound, uh, spiritually bound, of course, than he is even now. This seems to be his thought. And then on the very fringe of the important pre-reformers, we need to go to Czechoslovakia. A very important thinker there, uh, underestimated, I'm afraid, is the great Matthias of Janau in Czechoslovakia. He was the canon of Prague, and round about 1370, uh, he said in his work, which uh, is later requoted in Neander's General History of the Christian Religion, uh, volume 5 and page 200, he says, As John the Baptist pointed away to, uh, to Christ, so the signs of the times point away impressively with their fingers to Antichrist already coming. They point to him now and will point to him still more. They have revealed him and will reveal him till the Lord shall destroy him with the breath or the spirit of his mouth or his word and he will consume him by the brightness of his new revelation until Satan is finally crushed under his feet. What's he saying? He's saying it's not the second coming which destroys the Antichrist. It's the powerful preaching of the word of God in the power of the Spirit. And it is the brightness of this new revelation of his power, namely through the agency of the preached word. The friends of Christ, however, uh, will destroy Antichrist. They will rob him of his trade. These friends of Christ are the company of the preachers of Jesus Christ, united and bound together by the love and wisdom which come from God. All Holy Scripture predicts that before the end of the world, the Church of Christ shall be reformed, renovated, and more widely extended, that she shall be restored to her pristine dignity, and that still in her old age, her fruitfulness shall increase. And he, of course, this Matthias of Janau, prepared the way for the coming of John Wycliffe, the English professor of Oxford, who, around 1380, wrote in his two works concerning the veracity of the Holy Scriptures, uh, volume 3, and concerning the power of the Pope, volume 2, Bluntly and forthrightly, the Pope is Antichrist here on earth. Why is it necessary in unbelief to look for another Antichrist? Hence, in the seventh chapter of Daniel, Antichrist is forcefully described by a blasphemous little horn arising in the time of the fourth or Roman kingdom. For it grew from among our powerful ones, more horrible, more cruel, and more greedy. The ten horns are the whole of our temporal rulers, and the blaspheming little horn 
has arisen from the ten horns, having eyes and a mouth speaking great things against the lofty one, and wearing out the saints of the Most High, and thinking that he is able to change times and laws. For so our clergy foresee the Lord Pope, as it is said of the eighth blaspheming little head. And then one of these brave men, Walter Brute, the British Lollard leader of Wales, was brought to trial in 1390, and at the trial proceedings, this was the indictment against him. Item, the said Walter Brute has oftentimes said and commonly avouched that the Pope is Antichrist and a seducer of the people, and that he is utterly against the law of Christ and the life of Christ. But I believe quite the most remarkable citation in medieval development that I've been able to find is that of Nicholas Krebs, Nicholas de Cusa, who was the German archdeacon of Liege in 1450, at the time that the reformational councils were underway, uh, though they were not heeded prior to the emergence of Luther, we find him writing the following fascinating words in his uh, conjecturing works. Listen to this. All time, he says, is unrolled in periods of seven, as seven days, seven years, seven times seven years, which are forty-nine. Hence, the fiftieth year is after a wearisome revolution of time, a Sabbath-keeping in which all slavery ceases and returns to liberty. The number of the faithful will be steadily increased and will be successfully enlarged by the light of the doctrine until the 50th Jubilee. And there will be made in the very signs and prodigies explanations of the life of Christ handed down in the Gospels. There will not be one dwelling in the world without the knowledge of Christ. The church will rise again, and the infidel antichrists, seeing that the church has prevailed and that they are conquered, will submit to Christ as the victor, and all nations will return to him, and the glorious church turns by a glorious resurrection from the oppression of Antichrist. All who have been in doubt concerning the truth of the life which is in Christ the bridegroom of the church then become witnesses of the glorious resurrection. Right on the edge of the Reformation we pose in Florence to listen to Jerome Savonarola A.D. 14. 90, martyred for the pre-Protestant faith which he preached. It is necessary to convert the Turks, he says. And how shall they be converted unless the church be renewed? St. Matthew hath told us that the gospel shall be preached throughout the world. Rome will not be able to quench this fire, and if this were quenched, God would kindle another. And it is already kindled everywhere, only they do not know it. Thus in his sermons concerning uh, renovations, the third sermon, and then in a sermon he preached in March 1498, he says, In the pompous house of night, the Romanists murmured their prayers and rattled their sermons, but the stream of life did not gush forth. It had turned to ice in this frosty atmosphere, and out of this cloud of incense stepped one who declared, I am the vicar of God on earth. And the nations worshipped him. He could not err, even if he did not speak the truth. He alone could save souls, even if he brought misery. But the people who dwelt in darkness and the shadow of death should see the great light again, the light which brightens the day. And the faithful watchman on the wall of Zion proclaimed, The night is far spent, and the day is approaching. Let us cast off the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Truth stands firm, 
And like the earth turns round the sun, so men turn toward the truth. Jesus has given to truth a brightness like the brightness of the morning. He roused new life in the hearts of men, and never, never will he cease again. I would like to say one or two words about someone who has had a great impact not only on the rise of American Puritanism, but also on the colonization of South Africa. It's especially from this time that traders in Europe, uh, sometimes imbued by Christian motives, particularly after Marco Polo's overland uh, trips to the Far East, began to scratch their heads as to how they could sail to the East Indies. And you recall that South Africa was established by the Dutch East Indies Company to set up a halfway watering station on the way to Indonesia. But there was in Italy a similar attempt and a prior one to discover the East Indies by water, which, successful in a way that had not been anticipated, gave great stimulus even to the emergence of the Dutch East India Company. I refer, of course, to the work of that great Christian and post-millennialist Christopher Columbus, the Italian discoverer of the Americas, round about 1500. The date is significant, 17 short years before the emergence of Luther as a fully-fledged Protestant. Well, Columbus, according to Harris's notes on Columbus and Draper's History of Intellectual Development, uh, is recorded as having said the following. There must be other inhabited lands, since God's command at the flood was to replenish the earth. O Lord, eternal and almighty God, by the sacred word thou hast created the heavens, the earth, and the sea, cultural mandate. Blessed and glorified be thy name, and praised be thy majesty, who hast designed to use thy humble servant to make thy sacred name known and proclaimed in this other part of the world. And then, in the voyages of Christopher Columbus and Columbus's authentic letters, uh, we encounter the following. All this makes for the security of the Christians and the assurance of their dominion and gives great hope for the honor and increase of the Christian religion. In the name of the Most Holy Trinity, apparently believed in the ontological trinity, who inspired me with the idea and afterward made it perfectly clear to me that I could navigate and go to the Indies from Spain by traversing the ocean westwardly. There are many other fascinating quotes from Columbus, but I'll settle for just one more as we uh, reach Martin Luther. A citation from Columbus's book of prophecies and uh, the first letter of Christian Columbus to Lord Raphael Sanchez, written March the 14th, 1493. He says, Let Christ rejoice upon earth, as he rejoices in heaven, as he foresees that so many souls of so many people heretofore lost are to be saved. I said above, that much remains for the completion of the prophecies. Much remains for the completion of the prophecies. No imminence doctrine here. And I say that there are great things in the world. And I say that the sign is that our Lord is hastening them. The preaching of this gospel in so many lands in recent times tells it to me. I'd love to research one day perhaps some of you have the influence, if any, that Columbus may have had on Martin Luther. I'm quite sure he had an influence on Calvin, the only reformer uh, to follow Columbus uh, to the Americas in sending 
the uh, three Calvinist missionaries to Brazil. But at any rate, Martin Luther seems to be the link for me between Columbus and Calvin. And Luther says the following in his writings, uh, volume 22 and column 844. He says, The body of Antichrist is both the Pope and the Turk, because a living being consists of body and soul. The spirit of the Antichrist is the Pope, his flesh is the Turk. The Turk fights against the Church with material weapons. The Pope fights against the Church with spiritual weapons. But both are from the same master, the devil, because the Pope is a liar and the Turk is a murderer. Make a unit of the Antichrist and you will find both in the Pope, lying and murdering. But, as in the beginning, the Church was victorious over the sanctimoniousness of the Jews and the might of the Romans, in like manner the Church will today and forever be victorious over the hypocrites, that is, over the Pope and the power of the Turk and the Emperor. Just let us pray for it. I think that that emphasis on prayer in Luther was picked up by Andrew Murray, the probably the greatest known South African preacher of world renown, who when I get to him, we will see believed in the subjugation of the world uh, to Christ, particularly by prayer. As you know, Luther was a man who used to pray three hours every day before he started his work, otherwise he felt he would never have the resources to get through the day's work after he got through praying. He also tells us in his table talk, the Pope is the last blaze in the lamp which will go out, and ere long be extinguished the last instrument of the devil. But when the devil is struck with God's word, then the Pope is turned to a puppy and a frothy flower. Last, the link between Luther and Switzerland, where... Calvin stationed himself, Aldrich Zwingli, fascinating character, the pioneer Swiss reformer, died in battle, as you know, round about uh, 1530 or so. But listen to what Zwingli says. At the very edge of the time of the emergence of Calvin in his country, to continue in his footsteps, Zwingli says, If we would live Christ-like, everybody would fall away from popedom because they would recognize that nothing else than deceitful pomp stands behind it. Everything undertaken against the papacy toward its fall will succeed. And I request that we break the might of the papacy not by the power of hatred but by the power of love to God and to our neighbor. The papacy has to be abolished, or it conceals itself until it suppresses the gospel again. But by no other means can the papacy be more thoroughly routed than by the word of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. In other words, it's not the second coming that routes the Antichrist. It is the powerful preaching of the word of God. Because as soon as the world receives this word of God in the right way, the world will turn away from the Pope without compulsion. It is from this line of thought and is a projection of this outlook on predictive prophecy that we will next go to consider in the following lecture the emergence of John Calvin. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.